We are studying through uh, the Bible together. We're beginning with the book of Genesis. In weeks to come, we'll kind of bounce, uh, or months to come, we'll bounce back and forth between the Old and New Testament. Genesis is the place where you begin because it is truly about the beginnings of creation, the beginnings of life. When we think about its relevance to today, we still see incredible connections to the things that are happening in our world and around us and within ourselves. If you have ever experienced grief, if you have ever experienced sin, if you have ever experienced death, if you have ever experienced shame, there are immediate connections to the book of Genesis right out of the gate. In Genesis 1, we get the big picture. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And in Genesis 2, we get that God is not just the God of the big picture, that God is also the God of the pixels. He's narrowed in on the focus of human life. He knows you, he loves you, and he has something very special for all of us. I'll share that with you today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for this moment that we can share, studying your word, letting it study our hearts. Lord, search our hearts and know our ways. Know all that's anxious within us. Know our shame and our guilt and know our sorrow and our sadness. Know our grief, God, and draw near to us. God, you have made a good creation. You've looked at us and you've called us very good. And oftentimes, God, we have a hard time seeing that about ourselves and seeing it about the world that we live. But today... Today, God, shine a light in the darkness. Shine the light in the darkness of our soul, the darknesses of our mind. Shine a bright light that there would be healing, that there would be hope, that there would be a step towards you today in our lives, or that we would turn from our past and past sins and brokenness and live a new life today. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. He is our light. He is our salvation. Would you guide us now through your spirit? In your name that we pray, amen. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, we'll start in verse 4. The first part of 2, verses 1 through 3, is wrapping up Genesis 1 account of creation. It's the set, uh, it's the day of rest for God. It transitions then right into a more, uh, there's the big picture in Genesis 1, there's the pixels in Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God had made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Remember verse 9, that the Lord God made all kinds of trees 
grow out of the ground and the trees that were pleasing in the eye and good for food. They were pleasing to the eye. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs alongside the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. A word about all of that. We know where the Tigris and Euphrates are. The other two rivers, they don't have any idea. Basically, this is planting us in Mesopotamia area. But we really have no idea where it is. Go ahead and go and try finding it. Anyway, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the, name, whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We're going to also get to Genesis chapter 2. I debated about just skipping, skipping Genesis chapter 2, but Genesis 3 really lacks the punch when you don't have Genesis 2 kind of in the forefront of your mind. You kind of have to read both of them together. This morning, I just want to draw a few things out of Genesis 2 and make sure we're kind of all on the same page when we look at it. So Genesis 2 teaches us about the life that is given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It gives us a picture of how God intended for his creation to live how to care for one another, and also to care for creation. We discover an awful lot about ourselves and our life with him. So God is the God of the big picture in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, God, he looks at what's going on with his creation. He says, okay, I need you to do a few things for me. So Adam is created, and he's created from the dust of the ground. And he says, okay, i got work for you to do. I need you to work the soil. I need you to take care of things. And this was not the laborious work. This would have been enjoyable work. This was not contending for getting the right amount of rain. This wasn't contention with the weeds. This was, let's cultivate the soil, let's care for it, and let it flourish and grow. This was good work. It was enjoyable work. I think that it was meant to be that way. 
And so Adam's job is to care for things. Adam gets a, he gets a task. He says, okay, we need to find a helper for you. And here, let's send all the names, or let's send all the animals in front of you and we'll, we'll name them. And so Adam takes care of this and he starts naming things. And how he came up with platypus, I don't know, or hippopotamus, but there are some fun, you know, sort of children lessons there of just how, you know, how did he come up with the names he came up with? As Adam is naming creation, it's discovered that there's not a suitable helper for Adam. And so God puts him to sleep and takes from his rib, and uh, he creates Eve. And from this, uh, from this, he said, you know, this will be your helper and your companion. When we look at creation, and when we look at Genesis 2, I think it's important for us to realize that the Adam and Eve, the man and woman relationship in Genesis chapter 2, is of mutual support and companionship. I believe that because of the word helper. Some folks will read helper, and they will think that the woman is in a diminutive place. I'm about ready to say something that might be controversial to what you've heard most of your life. I want you to hear me, okay? The word helper, there. Okay, we need to get the woman to be a help. Everyone agrees the woman is a help to the man in this scenario, right? The problem with the word help is, is that we end up putting that as a diminutive place, that you are uh, over them. Like, hey, you're the helper. You're supposed to be helping me and come along. As a little bit of a setup for you, I read Psalm 121. Who does it say your helper is? The Lord your God is your help. The word used in Genesis 2 is the same word used in Genesis 1.21. Is God less than you? No. But does he come alongside you and care for you and lead you and, and you know, meet your needs and support you and get you to, you know, like does he move you along? And so here's my invitation. If you are married or even just if you are single and you have you know, relationships and friendships. Would you not look at anyone as though they are less than you? Would you look at them as though they are your help and your care? And if we had marriages where we would look to one another as mutual support and care, I think that we would go a long ways than trying to diminish the other person. Does that mean that I have roles? Yes. Does it mean my wife has roles? Yes but each of them working together to care for and meet one another's needs is, I think, a healthier way to go. I don't know how it works for you to say to your spouse, you're the helper, you do it. It has not, bode, uh, boded, uh, it has not gone well for me to do that. Not that I would ever do such a thing, right, Wendy? She's nodding her head and she's saying that I'm the best. So, <laughs> just so we're all on the same page. But when we think about relationships, I think we need to think more about of our, our relationships in light of God's intention in Genesis 2 than the way we look at the world in light of the tension brought in Genesis 3. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ, and I think we need to embrace what God was calling us to in the Garden of Eden more so than the tensions that are pr present because of the curse in Genesis 3. So let's live out of this companionship and care for one another, trusting that the role of a helper is not diminutive. It's not submissive in the sense that we are lording over our spouse. 
but that they would come alongside us and that we would come alongside them. That's my biblical argument for it, that the word helper is the same word used as God is our help. Go ahead and write me an email if you like it. All right. So God, the, so we have the big picture God and then the pixel God in Genesis 2. We get that God is caring for the sort of intricate details of our lives. That there is a relationship with Adam, that there's a relationship with man and woman, that he's caring for them, that he's with them, he's present. He sees this need within man that says it's not good for you to be alone. And so I think at the very foundation of Genesis 2, we get a sense that we need each other, that we need one another in our, in our lives. We also need God, that we are meant to be a communal sort of people. God is going to tell Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that's going to be kind of hard without the woman. And there's actually a fun little thing. I say it's fun. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom thing, and it's not worth explaining. But basically, well, maybe it is worth explaining, but there's a little nuance in the Hebrew language where it's basically pointing out that you can't have woman without man, and you can't have man without wo- woman. You can't have one without the other. And so what they're doing and what's going on is it's this incredibly important thing, realizing that all of our lives are dependent upon one another. I do this really awkward thing sometimes talking to teenagers. I invite them to touch their belly button. Yes, I know, it's weird. I like doing weird things. And I ask them, touch your belly button. And they don't do it because it's weird. But uh, but here's the reason why I say that. The belly button is the awkward reminder that you are completely dependent on your life because of someone else. Right? Like, you don't have life. You don't have a little belly button because someone took care of you. You were helpless and in deep need, and someone took care of you. We have all of these reminders, and the text, Genesis 2, is a reminder of this sort of dependence upon man and woman that there's no life if they don't have one another. God is caring for all of the intricate details, and he blesses creation. He blesses humankind. He gives a whole garden filled with trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. This place would have been filled, I think, with peace. I think it would have been filled with joy. I think it would have been, you know, a really great place to be. Now, let's read chapter 3. There's more to be said there, but we'll keep moving on. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? One, we have animals talking. It's already starting out a little strange. Did all animals talk? Was it just the serpent? We don't know. Let your imagination run wild and write a blog about it. I don't know. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. What did Eve add? What did the woman add to the story? 
touch it. Why did she do that? I don't know. I don't know why she added it. Here's my running theory. We have a tendency to make God out to be more malevolent than he really is. He did say not to touch it. We do this all the time with God. We make rules on the rules. And right from the very get-go, we get this sort of religious sort of adding of legalism already sort of being clumped into it. And it's this misunderstanding of who God is and his character. If we, we would do well for ourselves to remember that God is gracious and kind, that the garden that God placed them in was filled with wonderful things, Anyways, it's a challenging sort of thing that she adds it. Why does she add it? I think we have a tendency to get the wrong narrative about who God is and what he's about. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent, the Satan, the temptation is sort of reaching into our sort of envious the envy of just, well, he, we'll be like him. He doesn't want us to be like him. Well, I want what he has. I want, it, I want to be like him. I know none of you suffer from envy, but I'll just keep moving on. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Were there other trees in the garden that were good and pleasing to the eye? There were. But she saw one that she couldn't have. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. We like to give Eve a hard time, but the guy was there the whole time. He got the rule, and he didn't say anything. Both very culpable. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And I want you to notice what happens in ch- uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It becomes the Lord God. Chapter 2 is the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. And it's the Lord God who walked with them. In Genesis 1, it was just God. It was Elohim. This is the Lord God, Yahweh. This is the relationship God. This is the one that reveals himself to Israel. Because I am the Lord, your God. And the Lord God is with them. He calls to the man and he says, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put me here with, wait, put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And all of them start the blame game. And every kindergartner has has done it ever since, right? It wasn't me, it was somebody else. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The domination ruling over happens at the curse. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I command you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, though painful toil, through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made gar garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The biggest trouble we find ourselves in is when we think we know better than God. Think about the pride of that statement. And if I can make it um, this chapter deeply personal, it would be to look within ourselves and look at our own pride. How often do you think your way is better than God's way? The whole narrative paints the picture that God's holding something back from Adam and Eve. That's Satan's playbook, 101. You deserve this. He's holding back from you. Go take for yourself. I don't, when I fall into sin, when I fall into not just the temptation, but give in, it's often that I know something better than what God does that I know some better way for my marriage to be, that I know some better way for me to get what I want and have what I want. We look at God and we can look at the Garden of Eden and God gives this bountiful blessing and he says there's one tree. And we have the proclivity within ourselves to believe that that one tree will be the one thing that we're missing and what we truly want and desire. Yet God is saying there is a bounty of blessings for you. Yet we choose for ourselves. The real challenge of this text is that it really shines a light on my pride in my own life. That I own my own struggles of thinking I can figure out something better for myself than what God offers me. And I think the rest of creation has been sort of battling along with that tension their entire lives that we would know better than God. And I think Genesis chapter 2 
in chapter 3 is an invitation and it is written so that we would believe that we can trust in God. That you can trust him when he says to you that you really don't want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I, boy, I wish they would have trusted him and I wish that we would trust him still today. That what he is offering you is blessings and life and mercy and kindness and grace and what we choose instead is sin and shame and brokenness and death. What we could have and we can get and we can get all that we want. It's so challenging for us. The punch of Genesis 3, when we look at the goodness of Genesis 2 and we wonder, why do we keep falling into sin? And we look at the brokenness that happens within Adam and Eve and we look at the shame and the sorrow and they go and they hide in the trees and, and God's like, well, who told you that you were naked? Did, you guys ate from the tree, didn't you? You, ate, you, you gunned on and did it, didn't you? Who told you that you're naked? And why are you feeling shame? Have you felt shame? Have you felt shame? Shame in your walk with God. You know, Kevin read the famous story of Peter denying being Jesus' disciple. Do you think he felt shame that day? Do you think he felt shame every moment he ever smelled a campfire and he thought, oh, I remember that moment. You see, this story is not finished, though. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't end with the curse of Genesis 3 and the casting out of the Garden of Eden. The Bible ends, the story ends, with God bringing us back to the Garden. And the story of the Bible is a story about two trees, the tree in the Garden of Eden and the tree of life, and the tree of life in the garden in the renewed and restored creation. One that says there's no more shame. One that says there's no more guilt. That one that says in this place there is forgiveness and there is life because of Jesus Christ. And we look at the tension of what is lost between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And the tension that's there is the tension of the tree of the cross of Jesus Christ where it is the cross of Christ that bears our shame, the cross of Christ where He is there naked and exposed. It is the cross of Christ that He's there before all of us to bear our sin and to forgive us our sin. So that we may have life in Christ, that we might be invited to live anew in the new creation and restored heaven and earth. We have lost the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, but the path forward is believing in Christ and His forgiveness and His grace. And so we have to live our life in light of this truth, that Jesus forgives. That Jesus forgives. There is grace for you. We can look at Genesis 2. And I didn't, I didn't do it, 
But you could walk through Genesis 2, and you could talk about marriage. And the moment you talk about marriage in Genesis 2, then we could start talking about what marriage has become in our culture, and we can point fingers at what it is and what it isn't. But we can even look within ourselves and we can say, you know, my marriage hasn't lived up to Genesis 2. My relationship with God hasn't lived up to Genesis 2. My life looks an awful lot more like Genesis 3 than it does Genesis 2. My life looks an awful lot like the curses and the brokenness and the hurt and the toil. Guys, today the projector didn't work and I was wearing a different shirt. When I came in, I was hitting the button, and it wouldn't turn on. And I started sweating. I mean, I was just, it was pouring out. Heat rises, and I was wearing layers. Why I was wearing layers, and you're like me, I don't know why. I got the projector fixed, praise Jesus, you know. I was just pouring in sweat. And that's a stupid thing, it's trivial. But our lives are filled with so much work and toil and shame and difficulty. If you were to just sit down for a moment and you start writing out the regrets that you have, the failures in your life, the times that you fell short of living up to Genesis 2, your life is probably, if you were to put it on a scale, do you live up to the expectation of Genesis 2 or do you live in the shame and sorrow of Genesis 3? And I would say that if you are like me, you've done far too many things on the Genesis 3 scale to ever feel like you have any place with God or a life with Him. You don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve to walk with Him. And the powerful story of God says that despite Genesis 3, and despite the pain of the curse, and despite all of the conflict in all of every aspect of our life, despite the weight of Genesis 3, there is the grace of Jesus Christ. There's this little glimmer of hope, this little thing tucked away, that when we know who Jesus is, we look back on it and we say, oh, God was something up to something even there. Genesis 3 says there's a serpent crusher coming. You're going to strike his heel, but you know what? He's going to smash your head. And the serpent who led the world astray, well, his power is destroyed. And it's the power of Jesus Christ and its new life and its forgiveness and its renewal and its hope and its salvation that you have today because Jesus lives. And that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible teaches us that that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you for who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he's raised from the dead, that you too will be saved. Romans 10, 9. So the invitation, the application, the sort of driving this whole thing home, it's something that my wife tells me often. I never have to tell her this very much because she's a good person. But for me, I need help. And it's this phrase. There's no guilt and shame today. 
There's no guilt and shame over our past. There's hope for tomorrow. Do you live in hope for tomorrow? That God's grace is for you, that his forgiveness has been extended to you, that Jesus Christ died for you and has set you free. Do you live in the hope of today? Do you live in the hope that Jesus has forgiven you? That there's hope today in your marriage to restore it? That there's hope for you today in your walk with God and your relationship with him? That we no longer need to hide behind the trees, but that we can come out and say, God, I'm here and I'm with you and I have sinned and I have fallen short of your glory. But praise you for your forgiveness. Thank you for giving me new life. May I walk with you today. Do you have a relationship with God? Will you seek him with your life? Will you take his forgiveness that's offered you in Jesus Christ today? Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our help that comes from him. Apart from you, God, there is no life, there's no freedom, there's, there's nothing. And God, we hear these lies about you, this false narrative that says so many things about you, that you are not out for our good, that you don't care for us. God, we have done so many things in our own life to feel like we are undeserving of your care. God, our pride, our envy, our jealousy, our anger, so much has led us down a path, God, away from you. And God, when we think of all of the things that we've done and all of the shame and all of the sorrow and all of the death and all of the hurt, in all of the things, God, that weigh so heavy on our minds and our hearts that would remind us of our own brokenness and dismay and why we don't have a place with you, God, remove that today. Remind us of just how far and wide and great is your forgiveness that you, you God, you, God, from as far as the east is to the west have removed our transgressions from us. God, that what we lost in Genesis 2 will be given to us one day in Revelation 22. God, that you will remove all sin and you'll remove all doubt and you'll remove all death, you'll remove all brokenness and there will be nothing but you and us with you in a new heaven and a new earth, forgiveness and grace and mercy. So, Lord, for the guilt and the shame and the brokenness and the hurt and all the things that we have carried with us, God, we ask that you would shoulder them now, that you would forgive us now, that you would lead us to you, that we would live in hope, that we would live in love and grace and mercy for one another. God, knowing the full weight of our sorrow and our shame, God, may we be empathetic towards those who are unaware of you. And just how far and wide and deep is the love of God through Jesus Christ. May we know you and draw near to you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.